I think we should be wary of sort of a race to the bottom in ethical terms. For me, the question has to remain whether the system that uses autonomy can be used in compliance with the law of armed conflict. There is some real reticence on the part of some of the senior uniform decision makers to give over this kind of autonomy. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sanisbert of the Mad Scientist team, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci, or subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Michael Meyer, Special Assistant to the Army Judge Advocate General for Law of War Matters, and Sean Steen, Senior Force Planner for Emerging Technologies within the Office of the Secretary of Defense Policy. They'll be discussing the current state of the law as it pertains to lethal autonomy, how our ethical principles are being integrated into policy, and what the future holds for this dynamic and emerging topic. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Great. Thanks, Matt, for having us. Thanks. Great to be here. So today we're going to be talking about autonomy with a specific focus on lethality. And you're both involved in this subject from either a legal or ethics and policy angle. So let's go around. Can each of you introduce yourselves to our audience and tell them a little bit about what you do and how you're involved in this? And Mike, we'll start with you first. Great. Thanks, Matt. Uh, Again, my name is uh, Michael Meyer. I am the Special Assistant to the Army Judge Advocate General for Law of War Matters. What that essentially means is I am the Senior Civilian Advisor for the Army with respect to issues surrounding the law of armed conflict. Um, As part of my responsibilities, I'm the primary individual that conducts um, legal reviews of new weapons and weapon systems, Uh, and that would include autonomous systems if if they ever reach that point. Also, prior to assuming this position in 2016, I was an attorney at the Department of State with the Office of the Legal Advisor for Political Military Affairs, and in that capacity, I served as the head of the United States delegation to the convention on certain conventional weapons, um, which is called CCW. And during the period of 2014 to 2016, uh, that was when sort of the international discussions on autonomous weapons uh, took off. And Sean, how about you? Sure. Uh, I'm Sean Steen. I'm the senior force planner for emerging technologies in the office of the deputy assistant secretary of defense for strategy and force development within the Office of the Secretary of Defense Policy Shop. I'm a career civil servant. Among my duties, I am the shepherd, that's my term, for the DOD Directive 3000.09, Autonomy in Weapons Systems. Uh, The Undersecretary for Policy is the responsible under or component head, right, for that policy. Um, I am also the DOD lead on the U.S. delegation to the group of governmental experts on lethal autonomous weapons that Mike just mentioned, the international discussions on autonomous weapons. And so that's, that's how I end up coming to this sort of issue set. Well, we're excited to have both of you on here um, because there's a lot of information. There's a lot of misinformation around this subject. So we'll dive right into it now based on what you both just said there. What's, what is the current law? or policy as it pertains to the use and deployment of lethal autonomy? You know, first of all, it's important to know that the law of war, law of armed conflict, international humanitarian law, you'll hear, hear those three terms sort of used interchangeably, uh, depending on where you're at, does not specifically prohibit or restrict the use of autonomy uh, to aid in the operations of weapons. So there's no legal prohibition for the use of autonomy in weapon systems. In fact, in many cases, what we have seen, uh, because the use of autonomy is not new, is that they enhance the way the law of war principles can be implemented in military operations. Um, For example, we have munitions that have homing functions that enable the user to strike military objectives with greater discrimination and less risk of incidental harm. You know, so I think what you look at is there's sort of a lot of a wide range of law of armed conflict requirements that can be implicated by the use of autonomous systems. And the main law of armed conflict principles that are directly implicated with the use of um, autonomous systems are the general principles of distinction, which require combatants to distinguish um, between military objectives and make those the object of an attack versus attacks against civilians, civilian objects, and other protected persons and objects. 
the counter to that is the uh, principle of what we call proportionality, which means you have to refrain from an attack in which the expected loss of life to, or injury to civilians or damage to civilians and civilian objects that are incidental to that attack would be excessive in relation to the concrete and direct military advantage expected to be gained. And then sort of the third principle that's sort of directly implicated is what we call precautions in attack. And combatants have to make take feasible precautions in the planning and conducting attacks in order to reduce the harm of risk to civilians and other uh, protected persons and objects. And again, it's important when we have this discussion is the law of war rules on conducting attacks impose obligations on persons, not systems and the machines. So again, the operator, the human operators are the ones that have to comply with the law of armed conflict. You can't impose a legal obligation on an inanimate object. And similarly, you know, it doesn't require the weapon systems itself to make these sort of legal determinations um, about whether an attack will be you know, in violation of proportionality. Uh, I think what you see with autonomous systems and these more advanced systems is that um, the obligations on the person to take feasible precautions and other aspects will be more significant and they'll have greater obligations in such monitoring the operation of the weapon system um, or programming or building mechanisms into the system to make sure that they can uh, have sort of safeguards such as like automatic deactivation after a certain period of time. So that's sort of a very, very quick overview of the law. Uh, and I, I think, Sean, I will turn it over to Sean for uh, the DOD policy piece of that. Great. Thanks, Mike. In the same way that, uh, as Mike just described, like there is no legal prohibition against utilizing autonomy in weapon systems. Uh, there's a big misperception that exists out there, but there is no policy prohibition either. They are subject to additional sort of oversight, but they are not prohibited. The policy, as a policy matter, that's relevant here is DOD Directive 3000.09. That is the DOD policy on autonomy and weapon systems. And by default, it is the U.S. government policy on autonomous weapons. I'll just call it the directive, if that's all right. The directive establishes guidelines that are designed to minimize the probability and consequences of failures in autonomous and semi-autonomous weapon systems that could lead to unintended engagements. Unintended engagements are exactly what you would think, right? We want it to attack the things we want it to attack. We don't want it to attack the things we don't want it to attack. The directive also, I mean, it's a DOD directive, right? So it assigns responsibilities for the development and use of such weapon systems. Those systems are, per the directive, to be designed to allow commanders and operators to exercise, and I'm sort of foot stomping here, appropriate levels of human judgment over the use of force, right? That if, if you took nothing else away, that would be a key takeaway, right? Minimize unintended engagements and commanders and operators exercise appropriate levels of human judgment over the use of force. The directive has a bunch of stuff that it requires, like rigorous hardware and software, verification and validation, uh, they have to have appropriate safeties and anti-tamper and cybersecurity. The other one is as a, as a policy matter, right? It requires that persons who authorize the use of, direct the use of, or operate such systems must do so with appropriate care in accordance with the law of war, applicable treaties, weapon system safety rules, and applicable rules of engagement, right? So what does all this mean? Well, it defines certain categories of weapons that don't require the senior review. It's a little, I wasn't involved in the creation. I'm not throwing rocks at those who were, but so it, it exempts certain categories of weapons says they do not need review. Anything that's going to be operated, any semi-autonomous or autonomous weapon system that's going to be used in a manner other than what's laid out there has to undergo senior review and approval by the Undersecretary for Policy, the Undersecretary for Acquisition, and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs uh, before fielding and also before, quote, formal development. So really, this is just a check to make sure that the system is acceptable. And these are holistic and context-informed case-by-case reviews, or I should say they are intended to be 
And part of that is because, as Mike sort of alluded to, this thing was signed in November of 2012. We have yet to put a weapon system through this review. Nothing has been brought forward that meets the criteria requiring it. But so that's the that's the policy piece. So that, that's a lot of good information. And you mentioned in your answer appropriate care. And the impetus there is, is put on the person. As Mike said, you can't put restrictions on a system. They have to be put on a person. So when we're developing these policies and as autonomy and as AIs incorporated more into our systems, how are we incorporating ethics into these laws and policies? Are we doing that? I would say DOD Directive 3000.09 and policies like it for in other uh, areas, right, are an example of our ethics in action, right? One of the things in the, in the directive, right, is it, it, it lays out that part of what is being assessed by these seniors in the senior review and approval process is reliability, effectiveness, and suitability, right? And so uh, we already have a ton of processes, right? When you look at the spaghetti thing of all the weapons development and approvals and, you know, weapon system safety boards and all kinds of stuff, right? So we already have pretty robust procedures, I would argue, for reliability. And the directive is not trying to add more than that. It's, it's accounting for the stuff that's already being done in that regard. Similarly, you know, it talks about legal reviews. It doesn't oppose, impose any new legal requirements. It just makes, it draws on the legal reviews that we're going to do anyway. Um, similarly, effectiveness, right? There's all kinds of stuff in the OT&E kind of community. That's what they do. They assess that sort of effectiveness. Where it's a little unique is in that suitability sort of argument. Like, it may be reliable. It may be effective. Um, is it suitable? That's sort of the question. And that's where the, I would argue, the ethics piece ends up coming in. Man, okay. And I sort of like to take this kind of from, from two tacks and build on what, what Sean talked about. You know, looking at the law, I think one of the fundamental principles of the law is, is what we call uh, the principle of honor or chivalry. And honor is a core Army, Marine Corps, and, and you know, DOD-type value. Um, and it demands sort of a certain amount of fairness in offense and defense and a certain amount of mutual respect sort of between opposing forces. Um, well, chivalry, you know, people hear chivalry, and the first thing they think of is sort of, you know, knights in Europe in the Middle Ages. And it really was. There was a code of conduct, a uh, code of ethics uh, in the Middle Ages. And, and honor draws from sort of these sort of warrior codes of cultures and, and time periods. And it's a way of carrying out, acting, and living out other core values with respect to, you know, duty, loyalty, selfless service, integrity, uh, you know, other uh, core principles that the, that the army has incorporated in, in its ethics, you know, so that is built in as one of the principles of the law of armed conflict. And, you know, Sean talked about, you know, how we do this in weapons development. And I think it's also important if you, if you go back larger, I think you look at the, you know, 2018 national defense strategy, which talks about greater investments in artificial intelligence and autonomy, you know, to provide the United States with competitive advantages. And I think that leads into sort of the Department of Defense's AI strategy, you know, which is aligned with, uh, you know, the national defense strategy and DOD is committed to. And I think what you get back into is how is Department of Defense doing this? Um, you know, it goes back to sort of the, the AI strategy that we came up with and since kind of these AI principles uh, that we came forth. And, and again, I want to make perfectly clear when you talk about artificial intelligence and autonomy, they are not the same thing. Uh, it's important to distinguish between the two. While certainly some autonomous systems, and, and, and that's what the DOD directive that Sean talks about is autonomy. It doesn't necessarily talk about artificial intelligence. Though some autonomous systems may use artificial intelligence, it is not always the case. And again, the DOD directive focuses on autonomy and weapon systems. But I think what the Department of Defense has found, and, and I think Sean can certainly elaborate on that, is people think of artificial intelligence. There were principles that we wanted to make sure in the development of these systems um, that these ethics were taking place. And so they came up with those five DOD ethical principles. The first one, responsible. The second one, equitable. The third one, traceable. The fourth one, reliable, which Sean hit on. And then the fifth one, governable. So I think you have those DOD 
AI principles, which I think would apply just as much to autonomy and other weapon systems that we develop uh, to make sure that the ethics are brought into the development system and the testing system. Uh, that, so we will field uh, weapon systems that are lawful in their use. Yeah, I think that that's a good segue into, you know, one of the questions that we've come across a lot as we think about uh, lethal autonomy and, and what it means for the future is, you know, is this policy threat informed? Is this flexible from a threat perspective? So to say, if the threat evolves, can we effectively and quickly respond and meet that threat while still maintaining our core ethical values? So I think at a certain point, if you have enough speed of interaction on the battlefield um, from say an adversary that doesn't have too much trepidation with using full lethal autonomy and we face an existential threat, are we looking at a flexible policy uh, or rather one that has um, the parameters to allow us to be flexible? The directive is not threat informed, but I would make uh, sort of two general points about that. Uh, One, I think we should be wary of sort of a race to the bottom in ethical terms. And two, the standard that it sets out is, and I'm, I'm repeating, but you know, foot stomp here. We used to in Navy nuclear power long ago in a galaxy far away. We called it horsing, right? When Mr. Ed would stomp appropriate level of human judgment in the use of force is the, is the money phrase from the directive. Well, that's, that's already, I would argue a flexible, and context-dependent construct, right? So that's really the key point, is that we need to have these systems be such that the relevant commander or operator who is making the actual decision about employing this system in this particular context can, can exercise the appropriate level of human judgment that's necessary. I'm not sure, I would argue, that doesn't really change depending on what the, you know, if the adversary is willing to do something that is completely illegal, unethical, whatever, right? I'm not sure that changes the appropriate level of human judgment over the use of force. The directive defines an autonomous weapon as a system that once activated can select and engage targets without further intervention by a human. So in theory, right, it, it doesn't have to be AI, depending on how you define that term, right? It could be a highly automated system. You'll run into people in the tech community in particular, right? The directive does not concern itself with the guts of the decision-making that the machine is using, right? So it could be, frankly, it could be a highly, if you could get a mechanical computer, it could still qualify under the directive. So it it is a little bit important for us to understand that this is a Venn diagram and future systems are more likely to be AI enabled, right? However we choose to define that term, but the directive isn't worried about AI per se. It's worried about autonomy. No, I think that's a fair point. And uh, I appreciate the foot stomp as well. So thinking about um, the balance of striving for perfection, Um, versus just better than human. When we talk about autonomy, we're probably never going to get to to perfect 100%, you know, decision-making accuracy. But when we think about what humans do um, and our rate of accuracy, if you even think about strikes that take place um, throughout OIF, OEF over the last couple decades, um, and, you know, the, the potential for mistakes and things like that within human fallacy, are we expecting more uh, from the machines, and is there a hesitation to allow less than perfect from the machines? Yeah, um, and this is just sort of my own personal gripe, uh, Luke. Is I hate the term "better than human" uh, example uh, because that's not really the correct analysis. Certainly not from a legal perspective. From a practical perspective, it's not really that hard to be better than a human in, in execution of certain tasks. For example, you know, there have been tests regarding the accuracy of soldiers and even police, you know, when firing weapons under sort of stressful conditions. I think the rate is somewhere right at 30% or below 30%. Um, So that's not a very good uh, metric. 
For me, the question has to remain um, whether the system that uses autonomy can be used in compliance with the law of armed conflict, because that's the legal requirement. And that will go back to is, is, is what we talked about in testing and, and, and part of the, the 3000.09. However, I'm not naive and I recognize that because of the nature of these systems and the newness of these systems, because they are new, is that politically or in some sort of policy way, they probably will need to be close to perfect, at least as you first start. Um, and I think an example that you can look at is self-driving cars. And, and trust me, I'm not trying to make some sort of equivalence between armed conflict and, and, and self-driving cars. But we saw the uproar that you had, you know, when the car, you know, hit a pedestrian uh, when it was driving. So, and I can only imagine, you know, especially as we go back and look at the past 20 years of operating in sort of this uh, counterterrorism coin environment that we had, where the tolerance for civilian casualties is very low, and you have an autonomous system that engages in what, you know, Sean referred to as unintended engagement and, and causes a, a group of casualties to civilians. Um, there's going to be, you know, sort of blowback with that. Uh, and I think we anticipate that. So, but how do we fix it? And I think it goes back to exactly what Sean was talking about, is we have to look at the testing and evaluation, the validation and verification processes set up in 3000.09. And we need to ensure that there's trust with the system um, through those mechanisms so that commanders and operators are confident that the system's going to do what we designed it to do. And I think that's how you, you get around this and building trust. So there's not a requirement that it has to be 100% perfect because it will never reach that. Yeah, if I could, if I could just build on, because I, like Mike, I, I went to the self-driving car analogy and I didn't come up with this, but right. So if you look at the statistics in the United States every year, it's, it's something on the order of 33,000 Americans die as a result of auto accidents in some form or fashion. And like 90% of those auto accidents are human error, right? The, one of the drivers involved did something they, they shouldn't have done. Too much speed for the driving conditions, you know, whatever. You can easily, in my view, imagine a universe where you've transitioned to where all the cars are self-driving now and 3,000 or so people are dying every year in auto-related fatalities. And there would be a hue and cry about that, even though it's one-tenth of what is happening with humans driving the car. That, you know, we, we don't necessarily have a fair standard that we're holding these machines to. I think Mike is entirely correct in that. But to get to your root question, you know, you have a fundamental problem here in like how good is good enough? What is the standard that we should or will hold these machines to? And this is complicated. Again, Mike mentioned this by what is the metric for how well humans perform? This is really hard. If you go back historically and look, there was a period, we do it now, like you get in a high-rise building, you push the button. The elevator takes you to whatever floor you pushed, or, and the 15 of you, you know, you push 15 different floors. I mean, you don't worry about it. You just get in the elevator and push the button. Well, that wasn't how things were when that first was introduced, right? People were used to having literally an elevator operator. And there was some trepidation about trusting this, frankly, relatively simple machine to do this. We, we are probably going to experience similar kinds of issues, right? I'm old enough to remember and grew up in you know, Minnesota. Like you were taught when you were learning to drive to pump the brakes, right? When you were in icy conditions, if it started slipping, like you don't just stand on the brake pedal, you're going you're gonna to skid on slippery road conditions. Well, now we have automatic braking systems and you don't, you just let the machine take care of all that. You just apply the brake if you want more braking and then it will basically pump the brakes for you. So these are sort of simple analogies for, I think how we want to, you know, we're going to need to crawl, walk, run in terms of, of autonomy moving forward. So I want to ask a follow-up question to something that you said earlier. The, the policy is 
clear. The policy allows for what we're talking about, and it's been in effect since 2012. But you mentioned that we haven't had any systems that have uh, met the requirements. Why is that, and what's standing in our way? Um, well, so one would be one of the weapons that, if you're going to use it in this way, you know, it doesn't require the senior review. Is if it is semi-autonomous, i.e., a you know, the system might, for example, nominate targets, but the human still controls the, you know, validates the selection and and chooses to make the engagement decision. And the the weapon in that case can, you know, we've got all kinds of examples I could go into of different systems where the machine might make the specific decision on when exactly to fire the weapon. It might aim the weapon. If it's got a, a choice of multiple possible shooters, it might decide which one is the best, you know, has the best physics, kinematics, you know, whatever. Well, the way that definition like is that um, a human is involved, but that also includes a, a sort of caveat that says fire and forget or lock on after launch weapons. When the seeker goes active, the potential targets in the items field of, in the weapons field of regard are those that the operator intended to strike. We call that a semi-autonomous weapon. So some of our more advanced uh, lock-on after launch weapons don't require the senior review because they meet this caveat, if you will. I think the other one is, frankly, there is some real reticence on the part of some of the senior uniform decision makers to give over this kind of autonomy. Now, we, we've gotten past that in certain things like Aegis or Patriot on full auto, right? But even there, there's a operator who's sitting at a console like with Aegis, I mean, they can roll that key and take it off of fully automatic. They can't stop what's already been done, but they can terminate at that point, right? So we're culturally more comfortable with that. Former Deputy Secretary of Defense Bob Work loves to talk about the development of LOCAS. And what, what ended up killing LOCAS was senior Air Force uniformed leadership decided that they wanted a comm link and they wanted to be able to basically do manual override or have an abort at any and every stage along the way. Well, that killed it in terms of the expense required to put such a comm link that would be able to penetrate known or anticipated enemy jamming efforts and so forth. It just drove the expense of the weapon up to where you couldn't close the business case as it, as it were. But so I think that's really the limiter is that there's this cultural reticence and it, and it kind of goes back to, we've touched on also like the trust issue, the commander who's making the decision or the operator to actually you know, launch this or employ such a weapon system is going to have to have trust and confidence that they understand what the weapon's going to do and that the weapon's going to do what it's supposed to do, what they want it to do. If they don't have that trust, they're going to be reluctant, to say the least, to actually use the weapon. So I think that has been the, the, the greater thing, plus a certain degree of, um, when I was in the Navy, we used to refer to it as tribal knowledge, right? When it's just sort of the stuff that's, that's passed down from person to person to person. It's not written down anywhere. And sometimes tribal knowledge is wrong. Well, I can't tell you how many times I've had people come up to me with people who work in the DOD and tell me that they sure wish we could do this, but we have this policy that precludes autonomous weapons. No, we, we don't actually. Um, so I think those are the things I would offer as, as roadblocks. I agree with Sean. And I think, you know, what I see from my sort of area, and again, as the person who does the legal reviews for the army, you know, I spent a lot of time talking to, the weapons developers up at Picatinny Arsenal and, and, and other places. So I think what you're seeing more of now, and you, and you hear this term within Army, and I think even DOD is figuring out how to integrate this autonomy into a variety of systems and not just sort of the lethal ones. So what you hear is the term human machine teaming. And I think that's what we have a lot of folks working on is this human machine teaming, where you let humans do what they do best and machines do what they do best. Uh, and it allows you know, us to combine sort of the predictive capabilities of the algorithms with the expertise and intuition of humans 
you know, particularly in the decision framing. So the stuff that I see that are incorporating autonomy and certainly um, artificial intelligence are in sort of the ISR, the intelligence surveillance reconnaissance type systems, where you're using this autonomy to allow um, commanders and operators to make better decisions. So I haven't seen a push to have sort of fully autonomous weapons that would, you know, generate a review that under the directive, uh, but incorporating these in other aspects. And I think is the trust accrues with those systems where you're seeing that autonomy and AI will allow the commander to make better decisions and there's trust in that aspect. I think it will begin to flow into actual weapon systems itself. Um, so that that's sort of my view. A great example, that's an army example of, of what Mike is just talking about there, in my view, is um, CRAM. The counter-rocket artillery and mortar system there's an operator and the operator has to has to depress the enable fire button but the system does everything else and and really if the army had wanted to it could have made that a completely autonomous system they they didn't choose to do that for a variety of reasons but one of the beauties of such a thing in this human machine teaming is all the operator has to do is look decide if does it does it agree with what sort of the machine is is recommending or is is doing in a sense and push enable fire because the machine does everything else right it aims the weapons it chooses which of the ground-based phalanx has the the best shot and should be the shooter It, it does all of these things the human is able to just do the judgment part about do i want to make this engagement or not if the human had to do all those other things, like actually aim, so for example, it would it would be less accurate than the machine. Therefore, they would have to start shooting sooner, so they would get more you know repeat engagement possibilities. I mean, there's all these things that that human machine team is so much better than a pure human. Now, again, you could make this fully automated or autonomous, and in the future, maybe you would choose to do that. But, you know, let's not discount the incredible power that the human machine team can can bring to bear. Yeah. So I want to I want to pull a thread just a little bit. And do you think that there's a generational difference when it comes to that? One of the things you talked about was this building of trust over time. And I think it's really interesting. You know, we're, we're a podcast that talks a lot about the future. And I have kids that are six and nine years old and they're used to you they're used to you know working with really what are narrow AI solutions right now. So they they understand Alexa and things like that and they're very comfortable with that. Um, do you think generationally that changes that the next generation of um, warfighters and commanders are so comfortable with autonomy? And we talked about kind of vehicle autonomy and, and those things. Um, do we think generationally that changes? I mean, I think it's certainly it's certainly possible. I, I would also say that um, I think what we could see is both sides of that equation changing or evolving over time which is to say as yes, as we get more and more people, younger folks who are more and more comfortable or accustomed to such things that might facilitate a greater utilization of such technologies. But also over time, those technologies themselves may well be getting better. You know, there are certain challenges, like if this is a learning system, learning systems are a different kettle of fish and the directive is not very positively disposed toward them. It would require you to go back and, and do the whole T&E, V&V thing all over again, which I think is, is entirely appropriate at this point. But we might figure out how, whether it's the way we do T&E and V&V now, probably not, but we might figure out how it is that we can assess with confidence such learning systems are going to do what, what we want them to do or whatever. I don't know how to do that today. I'm not a technologist, but it's possible that we will figure that out as time goes on. And so that's why I say we might at one and the same time get better AI, better autonomy, better abilities to to assess what that learning system is likely to do and so forth, right along with the younger people will have less biases against using such technologies or whatever. I would also point out though that... um, some of us old coots 
right? We're, we're talking in particular here about weapons and lethal effects. I was having a conversation with a, a colleague who's an Air Force fighter pilot, and we were talking about the Boeing 737 MAX. And his point was, you can't be taking those kind of shortcuts when you're dealing with systems that are mission critical and human lives are at stake, right? That's not a weapon. You know, we don't get the blue screen of death nearly as often as we used to with our, with our computers, but I can't be having the blue screen of death if I have, if I'm controlling a weapon or I'm controlling a, a nuclear power plant or I'm controlling, you know, a, an aircraft with several hundred people on board. Right. So I do think some of that reticence is understandable and, in fact, you know, appropriate. I do think there, Sean's correct. And I, I think there is sort of a, a general generational aspect to it and, and sort of confidence aspect. And I would go back to use, um, you know, unmanned air vehicles or drones or whoever you want to talk to them. Um, I mean, if you go back to 2001, I think that was the first time that we ever had an armed UAV you know, engage in attack and, and, and kill someone. The approval process for that, you know, was extremely high. Uh, and as you were in the early 2000s, you know, they weren't used very often. The approval process was extremely cumbersome, uh, a very high level sort of national level approval authority for these uh, use of, of UAVs that are armed, you know, the, the other systems. And over time, as we've gotten more comfortable with how these systems operate and the fact that they, they work, you're seeing a change in, in, in how they are used. The approval process is not near as high. Um, they've become more commonplace. I think between like 2001 and 2006, there were less than 400. Um, I think we are multiple times over that you know, in the intervening 15 years. So I do think as our soldiers and commanders sort of grow up on these systems, um, that the comfort factor and the trust factor will increase. Uh, and I think you'll see that. I think that's what you'll see take place, similar to what we had with the unmanned systems. No, that makes a ton of sense. And I think that's a, that's a good kind of bridge to the, to the last question I have here, really, which is, you know, we, we have a lot going on in terms of advancement um, in these systems. We have, you know, the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center, which obviously is not as we said, the same as autonomy, but a lot of advancements in this area and we're seeing the technology grow sometimes at an exponential rate. Um, and we're really expanding a lot into the space domain and in other places. And so do you think what, really what I'm asking is what does the future of autonomous policy look like in 10 years? Are we still operating under the same directive um, or is this something that evolves over the next 10 years? I get a variant of this question, especially when I'm in these discussions in Geneva or whatever, right? Which is a little funny. Can I just take a side note to say, to, to get sort of stones thrown at the United States in this regard from countries or from organizations, right? That don't have even such a policy, but then to say, well, you know, 2012, I mean, you haven't updated it yet. It, you know, well, I would argue it is not, I'm not trying to give it legal status or whatever, but the law of war is, is a very high level thing that talks about principles and right. It's, it's not um, the kind of nitty gritty establishing specific metrics, right? It, it talks at a level of like principles and so forth in the same way, this, the, the directive I would argue is a very kind of strategic level document. So it has these words like, appropriate level of human judgment. It doesn't say that the specification for this is 87, right? It, it doesn't do that. So to that degree, I think we may not see a rampantly different sort of policy and we may not need a, a, a rampantly different policy because that which is appropriate and that test and evaluation or verification and validation, that can change without the directive and the policy changing. You see what I mean? The, the methodologies and the, and the tactics, techniques and procedures and whatever, that can all change without the overarching policy construct changing. And speaking of, can I go back to also in a certain way where you talk about the youngsters and whatever, right? So I, I would say, one of the things that we really need to work through is, and this is kind of true, whatever, you know, new technology you're advancing, right? 
we'll know we've kind of arrived when we start changing the con ops and the way we're going to operate to account for this stuff. When, when we're not just making marginal improvements, right? When we're not just saying, oh, well, this system does exactly what that system did. It just goes farther, faster with a, you know, more effective warhead but we in fact can change the way we are operating as a result of it. That will be another sort of thing where, and that's where I think the kids, right, are going to be, you know, the iron majors of today are the ones who maybe aren't as constrained in their own minds and they're more familiar with the technology and they will start to, to work out how we can change our operations to account for these capabilities better. But I think it's, it is possible. Uh, there are tweaks that we could make, of course. You know, the, the directive is a document constructed by humans. It, it could be better. But I think that it is, it is possible that it could last a, a good long while yet. And I'll leave it at that. Okay, so overall, I think Mike and Sean have agreed we can start making kill robots starting tomorrow. Got it. Might be hard to get them approved, but <laughs> we can make them. We can make them. And look, I, I think I would like to sort of add on to, to what Sean said. And I, I think going back to your first part of your, the, where's the technology going to be in 20 years? I like to use this example of just look at your cell phone. I mean, let's go back 20 years to the year 2000, 2001. I remember uh, we had just gotten cell phones. I think it first got cell phones in like 2003. I didn't even have one in 2000. You know, they couldn't do much of anything. And now look at them. I think I read somewhere they have more power in your phone than you know what the computers had to put a man on the moon so trying to look forward 10 years is is really hard so i i, I don't want to venture to guess where technology is going to go the only thing i can say for certain is is it's going to go and it's going to go forward and it's going to continue to advance sean brought up the directive and, and where we're at with these these policies and i think between the dod directive the dod ethical principles uh is we have you know the building blocks in place but it's certainly not the end of our work there's this great report that was released in December um, called Building Trust Through Testing. Uh, and it was authored by Michelle Flournoy, uh, Avril Haynes, who's now the DNI, and Gabrielle Chaffetz. And you know, in the study, they concluded that you know, DOD will need to reform its testing and verification systems, you know, the methods, the processes, infrastructure, and workforce to help decision makers and operators understand and manage the risks. Uh, of developing, producing, and, and, and operating these sort of systems. So I think what we have to look at is, is you know, how do we translate what we have in the directive and how do we translate in the, in the DOD ethical principles into something that's sort of a real plan? And, you know, how does that get incorporated in our testing and evaluation and validation verification from sort of machine learning systems. You know, Sean talked about machine learning and, and, and machines that learn and, and the directive is not real good for that. You know, one of the things that is sort of the legal reviewer for these systems is how do we do this? You know, Sean pointed out that if the, if the system learns and continues to learn and becomes sort of a new system, there's a requirement to bring that back in and do new testing and validation of the sort of the new system that's in our regulation that may not be workable in the long term as you sort of have computers that get updates almost constantly. So how do we develop a new testing system that allows us to take advantage of these technologies without having to pull a new system off the line for six months while we review it once again? So I think that's where we really have to go with respect to the, the technology is, is figure out how the testing system is going to allow us to field and keep these systems fielded. I, th I think that's great information. Um, I thank you guys for your answers to all these questions. You've you've kind of set me straight, personally speaking, in a few areas. You've challenged a lot of the assumptions I've been operating under, uh, and you give me a, a great perspective on lethal autonomy as it stands right now. So now I want to transition to what we call our rapid fire questions. Um, these are worth double the points, so everything to play for still. <laughs> although although Mike has a leg up because he mentioned Picatinny Arsenal, so he's got bonus points. Uh, but Sean, you're still in the game, so so let's let's get to the first one. What's a technology or a trend that keeps you up at night? And and Mike, we'll start with you, not out of favoritism, just because we'll go left to right on my screen. Sure. Um, and you'd probably be surprised to know it is not autonomous weapons. It is biological enhancement. Our ability to sort of upgrade the bodies of soldiers through drugs, implants, exoskeletons, things like that. 
you know, we're seeing DARPA do things like trying to implement this technology through like an ultrasonic brain stimulation to a helmet uh, that helps soldiers in the field. Uh, we're looking at, you know, smart gloves that give, you know, strength to your hands and, and bionic limbs. Uh, I remember doing a, a conference in Stockholm where we talked about sort of cyber uh, autonomous weapons and and then sort of this biological enhancement piece of that. I, I did sort of the concluding remarks and it came out. It's like, you know, my, my comment was, who knew that autonomous weapons would be the easiest of these? Um, <laughs> you know, uh, because at least with that one, you know, it's a weapon, um, you know, with uh, uh, biological enhancements and cyber, you know, does it even amount to an attack? Isn't it a weapon? That's something that scares the life out of me. So I went with not so much a technology but a trend, right? And, and let me preface this by saying, I mean, in general, I sleep pretty well at night, so I'm not trying to oversell this. But AI is an example, but it is one of many examples of sort of more and more high tech is either easily militarized or dual use. And we've already seen with things like uh, drones and remotely piloted aircraft, and other things, right, that, that these things are bleeding over such that non-state actors are getting access to more and more advanced capabilities. And, you know, the drones they were using in Syria might not be as good as the ones that we develop or, or even, you know, the Russians or, you know, a state, but they're good enough. And so that's what I sort of worry about. Now, to be clear, I'm not making an argument for some sort of arms control here. I'm just saying that I see this trend making the operational environment that much more challenging, you know, as we look to the future. No, absolutely. Bioenhancements and the democratization of technology are two things that we hit on very often at Mad Scientist. Uh, so the next question is going to get a little bit personal. What's something about you that most people might not know, keeping in mind that this is going out to the public? Yeah, we talked about generational and, and you know, one of the things is, you know, I'm started looking at things to do if I retire a, a second time. And one of the things that I really love is animals. Um, and I am looking to either start sort of an animal rescue um, or work with those um, that do animal rescue when I retire again. Very cool. Sean? I was on a canoe trip with a church youth group when I was a kid in Minnesota. We were up in the Boundary Waters Canoe area up in northern Minnesota. And it, it had been a serious and sustained uh, drought over the course of that summer. And this is relevant because the water levels in all the lakes were really low. And so what should have been an island that we were on uh, which you should, if you're on an island, right, and you continuously go choose clockwise, counterclockwise, doesn't matter, you, you keep going and you'll come back to where you started, right? You'll get around. Yeah, well, you can walk off a peninsula. And uh, so, and one of the things in the Boundary Waters, you can't cut for firewood, you just have to get driftwood, right? You have to get things that have fallen naturally. So I was going around this island piling up driftwood and then, you know, with the intent of taking it back to the campsite. Well, I walked off this peninsula that was supposed to be an island and ended up spending um, pretty much the whole day lost and alone in the, in the boundary waters. I managed to walk. And then once I finally accepted, the hardest part really is accepting that you're lost. Once I started calling out, right, trying to yell, eventually someone answered. And, you know, then I would, I would yell and they would respond. And, and I ended up coming across these two local boys from Ely, Minnesota, who were out, like, frankly, fishing and drinking beer. And so that's how I managed to get unlost. But that was, it was, it was not a cheery thought as the sun was going down. And I was thinking I was going to have to spend the night out there long ago in a galaxy far away. Yeah, I'm glad you're still with us. I'm glad it worked out in the end. Yeah, me too. Uh, so the, the piece de resistance here is the last question. What, what's your favorite movie? Mike, we'll go back to you. Yeah. Um, cause you know, you gave us this question beforehand. So, uh, I was having dinner with my wife last night and I said, well, one of the questions is what is your favorite movie? And she goes, Oh my God, please don't let it be the princess bride. Uh, because <laughs> <laughs> she says, uh, cause she does not like that movie. And I was like, how do you not like that movie? Um, I said, okay, so it won't be princess bride. I said, well, how about, uh, animal house? She goes, no. 
you know, you can't, you can't choose Animal House either. I said, okay. Uh, I said, actually, my favorite two movies, and again, in addition to Love of Animals, is, is I love baseball. So sort of my two favorite movies are um, The Natural with uh, Robert Redford, um, based on the book, and Field of Dreams, of course, obviously with Kevin Costner. So those have been and still remain my, my two favorite movies. Let me say, The Princess Bride is a, would have been a good choice, right? I love that movie, too. I chose um it's it's maybe somewhat obscure miller's crossing of uh, a coen brothers movie from like 1990 so i'm dating myself and part of the reason I, i've probably seen that movie more than any other movie one of the things i love is gabriel o'burn's character as the movie goes along you can sit there and and, and at one moment you'll think he has no idea what's happening. He has no idea what he, what he what he's doing. He's just sort of reflexively reacting to the situation. And then, you know, a couple minutes later, you'll be watching like, no, no, I think they wrote it such that he does know what's going on. And then you'll just go back and forth between these. And it's it's as many times as I've watched it, you still are like, I'm not really sure if when they wrote it, he's does he know what he's doing or not? I love that. Uh, that that's the Cohen brothers for you. Uh, so I mean. Great picks all around. Even the ones, Mike, that you didn't get to pick were, were great picks. Princess Bride has come up on this show before. I've got a, a hand-drawn portrait of John Belushi that my dad did down in our in our living room down here. So you, you couldn't have gotten that question wrong. And, and Coen Brothers have made some amazing movies. So excellent, excellent final question, gentlemen. I really appreciate you guys coming on. This was a great conversation. I think the information that we're getting out to folks, I think is going to clear up a lot of things. I think it's going to clear up a lot of the misinformation that's out there. So I thank you both for coming on. Yeah, thanks so much. It was great. Great. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guests, Michael Meyer of the Office of the Judge Advocate General and Sean Skeen of OSD Policy. You can connect with Mad Scientist through Twitter at ArmyMadSci. And don't forget to subscribe to our blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil.